It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. This is the hour of doom and bloom. That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Podcast, a journal of ingenuity in an injudicious world. I'm Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, co-founder of the survival medicine website, doomandbloom.net, where you'll find 1,200, gosh, more than that, articles, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness. And I'm Amy Alton, also known as Nurse Amy, and I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. That's right, and not to mention the goddess that's the hottest. That's right. (laughs) Yes, we tell you the basics here. We also tell you the conventional wisdom and the unconventional medical wisdom, if that's what it takes for your family to be medically self-reliant in times of trouble, and boy, are we in times of trouble. But before we start... You better yes. listen to this. Listen to this. Sorry if I stumble. <laughs> All information and opinions voiced on the Survival Medicine Podcast are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. We strongly urge our audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Next time I'll have the right glasses on. These are too strong. Your glasses look yeah, these, great. You look great glasses. Gla- oh, you're Very sweet. intelligent. It's just that these reading glasses were a little too strong. It makes things a little blurry. Yes, that's right. So I was well, afraid I wasn't going to be able to see those words pro- <laughs> properly. Well, you must have memorized them by now, just Yeah, about. you know, somewhere, some brain cell in the back <laughs> of my head. It's looking a little gray-haired. <laughs> it's got that memorized. Those neurons. I know. Can't replace them. Oh. Uh, Man, it is hot. It's summer here in South Florida, and the temperatures are in the 90s. Hot. It, we're actually in a heat wave in various parts of the nation. Arizona is like in the 112s. What? Uh, yeah, uh, about 112 degrees uh, yesterday. That'll cook a man. And that's right. And even, a woman. <laughs> right, even Denver was 95 degrees, so it's hot. Summer's here with a vengeance. Dang. And I'll tell you, parts of the North, Midwest and the Southern U.S. are going to experience some record high temperatures in major heat waves. Now, officials predict a high-risk situation for up to 200 million citizens as places in places as far north as Buffalo, New York, hitting 90 degrees for a week straight. That is pretty amazing. That's a record, I think, for Buffalo of the, that many days together hitting 90. Right. And of course, Phoenix, Arizona, all these other places. Pretty crazy, the air temperature in Death Valley, California. Well, that may reach as high as 125 degrees. That's how crazy it is. Even in places where the air temperature isn't so high, the heat index is surpassing the 90s, 100s, and 100s, and 10s. The heat index is a measure of the effects of air temperature combined with high humidity. It's important to know this. Above about 60% relative humidity, Loss of heat by perspiration is impaired and exposure to full sun really increases the reported heat index by as much as 10 to 15 degrees Fahrenheit. All of this increases the chances of heat-related illness, such as heat stroke and heat exhaustion. Now, in the next few weeks, we can expect the power grid to be challenged by, gosh, tens of millions of people and even more air conditioning units that are going to be set on high Major health issues, those can arise if the electricity goes out and people have to actually fight the heat with hand fans like they did in the good old days. I'm going to have to put quotes 
uh, on good old days. That's certainly true. Now, things are even worse in the city. Buildings and roads replace open land and vegetation, concrete, asphalt, surfaces, all that stuff. That, especially when exposed to the sun for a period of time, becomes so much hotter than the air temperature. And what happens is a heat island, a heat island, actually occurs in large populated areas. So rural areas are more moist and cool and lead to less heat-related emergencies. Another factor may increase the risk of heat-related emergencies, and that's homes without air conditioning are not only going to become sweat boxes, but many people cooped up in closed environments. Well, that's a recipe to increase the number of COVID-19 cases. Yep, can't go with show without mentioning COVID-19, it seems. So much for the summer giving us a break from the pandemic. They were saying that hotter temperatures would be something that would suppress the frequency of cases of COVID-19. It is not turning out to be the case. You might not consider a heat wave to be a natural disaster, but boy, it certainly is. Heat waves can cause mass casualties, and sure enough, it did in Europe and killed tens of thousands of people in one year because of exposure and that was not in the year 1603 or the year 1803 it happened in the year 2003 of course there are countries that are hot just in general india pakistan other underdeveloped tropical countries experience thousands of heat related deaths every year now how does heat kill a person your body core regulates its temperature for optimal organ function when you get core body temperatures rising excessively, then call that we call that hyperthermia. Inflammation start to occur, cells start to die, and toxins leak from these dead cells. And what happens is fatalities can occur pretty quickly without rapid intervention. You really got to move fast to save these people, even with modern technology. In modern times, hyperthermia still carries about a 10% death rate, mostly in the elderly and infirm. Those people that are physically fit, however, are not immune, especially if they go beyond their borders of what they can actually do. The ill effects due to overheating are called heat exhaustion if it's mild to moderate, but if severe, these effects are referred to as heat stroke, and it's sort of a continuum. You go from being okay to having heat exhaustion to having heat stroke. Heat exhaustion usually doesn't result in permanent damage, but heat stroke does in a lot of cases. Again, indeed, it can permanently disable or even kill its victim. It's a medical emergency that has to be diagnosed and treated promptly. Now, simply having muscle cramps or fainting, well, that doesn't necessarily signify that you're going to die from a heat-related medical emergency. You'll see heat cramps oftentimes in kids that have been running around on a hot day. Get them out of the sun, massage the affected muscles, and usually a little hydration. That will probably resolve the problem. What about you and I? We were just out gardening for, what, an hour and a half? Oh, yeah. It was hot, I man, hot stuff. I am sweaty and thirsty. And oh, yeah. You get to, very easy to get dehydrated. Flushed. My face. Look at my face. I know. You were sort of red. <laughs> it's not sunburn. I'm feeling dehydrated. You look bright and sunny. Yes. That's why that's I brought right. you water. Here, have a sip of water. Oh, okay. Thank you very much. See, we're hydrating. This is... Very, very important. And I will share some of that water. So the signs and symptoms of heat exhaustion are important. very important to recognize these early. Uh, these people have a sort of a rapid pulse. They're profusely sweating. They're flushed. They, have, uh, they feel nauseous sometimes. They have a headache. They may be confused. And their core temperature could rise pretty significantly, oftentimes into the low 100s, you know, 102, 103. 
If you don't have any action taken right away to cool this person, they could easily progress to heat stroke. And in addition to all the possible signs and symptoms of heat exhaustion, heat stroke will manifest as maybe a loss of consciousness. You may actually see somebody have a convulsion or even bleed in their vomit or in uh, in the urine. The, the breathing in some cases becomes just like somebody that is in shock. You know, they become rapid and shallow. It's uh, shallow. It's essentially a type of shock. Shock and organ fat malfunction obviously will result in death if not treated. You've got to do this. In heat stroke, by the way, the skin is likely to be red and hot to the touch, but oftentimes it's dry. The sweating, except for the sweating that's left over from when that person was in heat exhaustion, might be absent. Now, once a body core hits about 105 degrees or more, it varies from person to person, thermoregulation breaks down and the body's ability to use sweating as a natural temperature regulator fails. And in heat stroke, that's bad news. The body core can rise as high as 110 degrees Fahrenheit or more. As a matter of fact, the highest body temperature ever recorded, Amy, was yes. 115 degrees. What? That's right. You know, on July 10th, 1980, a 52-year-old man named Willie Jones, oh he lived gosh. in Atlanta. Poor Willie. He had heat stroke. He was admitted to the hospital, and his temperature, his body core temperature was 115 degrees Fahrenheit. I bet they questioned. Can you imagine how many times they took his temperature? Yeah, they couldn't because believe Because they it. must have believed that the thermometers were all broken. Uh, absolutely. You probably had 15 I'll people take his temperature that day. And say, that's not possible. <laughs> no way. Now, a good thing about Willie is that although he did spend about 24 <laughs> days in the hospital, he did recover. And oh, so we're glad, good. We're I'm glad so glad for, Willie recovered. Glad for Willie. Um, in some circumstances, the victim could have skin that feels sort of vaguely cool, like clammy, you know, feels clammy to the touch. It's important to realize that it's the body core temperature, not the outside, not the skin temperature or the temperature of a hand that's elevated. You could be misled unless you're taking readings with a thermometer to reveal the patient's true, true status. That's why we include thermometers in a lot of our medical kits that you can find store.doomandbloom.net, right? Yes, that's absolutely. Good, good. good. We should, uh, Thankfully, I have a stock. Uh, yes, that's I knew true. this was coming. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, with the the pandemic, a lot of people <clears throat> needed your pandemic kits, and they, which certainly included a thermometer. Well, anyhow, when overheated patients are no longer able to cool themselves, it's up to their rescuers to do the job. And so, if you suspect hyperthermia in someone, the victim should immediately be well be removed from the heat source, get them out of the sun, uh, remove their clothing as much as possible, drench them in cool water, even with ice if, you, if it's available, and elevate their legs above the level of their heart, the heart that's the uh, shock position. You want to fan them or otherwise ventilate them. That helps with heat evaporation. And if you can't totally drench them, you want to place at least cold compre compresses, ice packs, uh, in the area of the neck, the armpit, and the groin. And why these areas? Because major blood vessels pass close to the skin there, and cold packs will more efficiently cool the body core if you put them there as opposed to anywhere else. Now, I will say that recent studies by the military suggest that cold packs to the feet and to the hands are also helpful. And they, I, this is amazing, but people actually volunteered for this. <laughs> they actually volunteered to go into heat stroke. That's crazy. They, they put them in a 95-degree temperature room and had them run on the treadmill. 
until they pretty much collapsed. That's crazy. And so those were members of our military, and believe me, they don't have to prove their courage in any other way to me, or perhaps their foolhardiness. Right, yeah. exactly. Oh, that's all I can say. It's, it's a scary thing. I, I certainly wouldn't have volunteered for that one. Well, anyhow, oral rehydration. That's very important. You want to replace fluids lost, but you can't do it in somebody that's in heat stroke. You can only do it if the patient is awake and alert. If your patient has altered mental status, remember they might swallow the fluid into the wrong tube, into their airways. We call that aspiration and it causes significant damage to the lungs. So that's very, very important. Uh, heat stroke, preventable in most cases. That's the one good thing. And so let's look at somebody that would know uh, what they recommend. And that's the Arizona Department of Health. They recommend... Good point. Right. <laughs> you know, you're not just listening to me. You're listening to... This is what the official recommendations from the Arizona Department of Health are. Drink at least two liters, about a half gallon of water per day if you are mostly indoors, and one or two additional liters for every hour of outdoor time. Drink before you feel thirsty and avoid having alcohol or caffeine on a day that you're going to be spending out in the hot, hot weather. You want to wear lightweight, light-colored clothing, and you want to use a sun hat or an umbrella to deflect the sun's rays. Uh, Sunscreen, very important. And if you're going to use sunscreen, you should always put it on about 15 minutes before you go out to allow it to absorb. Yep. You want to eat frequent smaller <clears throat> meals instead of large ones, sort of like what diabetics do. You eat small, frequent meals. You want to avoid strenuous activity, especially in the middle of the day. Uh, and if if you're in a place like Arizona, you want to stay indoors as much as possible on those hot days and take regular breaks if you have to exert yourself on, on a warm day. If you're in the middle of a heat wave, be a good Samaritan. Check in on the elderly. If you have elderly neighbors, elderly family, you definitely want to check in on them. You want to keep a close eye on the very young. And of course, people that have uh, medical issues, you want to check on them regularly and often because these people may have difficulty seeking help. And you might just save a life if you're vigilant. You can bet there's more than one heat wave coming this summer. So know the warning signs and how to help people that have hyperthermia. You know, I recently saw an article on CNN where a number of medical experts were asked questions about how and when to visit friends and family during the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, I'm just an old country doctor, but I decided to take these same questions and answer them from my point of view. And for that, I need Amy to do actually ask me the questions so that I'm happy to. I don't seem like a doddering old <laughs> fool just talking to oh, himself. Oh gosh, here go my glasses again. All right. All right. What should people be thinking about as they consider visiting family or friends they have not seen, hopefully they're both family and friends, <laughs> yep. they have not seen during the pandemic? How can people safely grow their social circles during this reopening phase? Well, we know that COVID-19 is highly contagious and it can be spread even by people that are asymptomatic. Uh, there are a number of strategies that could allow people to begin to reconnect without raising risk significantly. You got to weigh certain factors though before you visit family and friends. Even as we attempt to reopen, the factor, fa the various factors that led to the lockdown still exist, and there's no treatment or vaccine yet. The virus is actually no less contagious than it was. Honestly, I think it's a virus that's going to, in the end, wind up affecting probably half of the American population. It wouldn't surprise me at all. First, the easy decision. If you're sick or the person you'd like to visit is sick, please, visits are a hard no. 
If you absolutely have to visit, you have no choice, you got to meet outside. Outdoors, you wear masks and you stay more than six feet apart. Your inner circle, by the way, should consist of very few people, maybe just your immediate family. You know how likely they are to have contact with COVID patients during work or socially. The more people in your circle, the harder it is to know who's been exposed during their daily activities. If your nuclear family includes elderly folks or people with serious health conditions, it's very important to use extra care around them. Brand new contacts are a bit of a crapshoot, I think. Uh, since a person may be contagious for a good two weeks or more, well, you're in contact by proxy with all the people with whom they've interacted during that period of time. Right, because they tell two people who tell two people who tell two people. Right, and yeah, when you talk to people, when you talk to people, all that, especially if you're having political conversations like people have nowadays, there's usually a lot of hot air around, and unfortunately, there's viruses in the hot air. Right. Now, you got to find out, by the way, whether a new contact is COVID savvy or whether they're the kind of people that make a show of not wearing masks or social distancing. You've got to make sure they share your level of concern about exposure. Have they been in crowds or confined spaces where the risk is elevated? Is your area in the midst of a peak of the number of COVID cases? Well, ours is. Yep, <laughs> All right. Question number two. How are you connecting with friends? All right. Stop moving it. <laughs> How are you connecting with friends and family at this point? And how has that changed over the course of the pandemic? Well, for me, lots of texting and virtual visits using FaceTime, Zoom, uh, all those during lockdowns. Uh, that comprises almost all of our contacts, honestly. When restrictions in Florida were relaxed, we met a very few people in person for short visits while they were outdoors and kept more than about six feet apart. We had one son that came for an outdoor visit, and that turned out okay, and our one daughter has visited as well. But the only physical contact we had with her really was with her golden retriever puppy, yes. whose name is Phil. We have Phil the golden retriever Aww, as a new, new addition to our family. That's our <laughs> new social circle. <clears throat> Absolutely. Number three, what steps do you think people should take if they're going to see people they don't live with? How does your view change based on people's ages? Well, visits, no matter with who, should be outside, if at all possible, where the viral load is less concentrated. Now, some people disagree, but I feel okay not wearing a mask in these outdoor visits as long as everybody stays about six feet apart or more, preferably more. Or are, if they're in motion, let's say that I'm taking a bike ride with a friend or a trail hike with a friend. For the most part, I feel relatively comfortable. It's not like we are face-to-face. -face. We are facing the same in the same direction right. and as we are moving whatever breath that has come out of our bodies is basically you know a few yards back yes so floating I, behind us and uh, falling to the ground now the good news is that i think that you, there's a good chance that you'll be perfectly fine just following those simple rules but you got to make sure that gatherings are small and relatively short in duration because the more likely honestly that you have contact with people the more likely you might be infected you got to postpone those big family holiday parties or yes, birthday which parties most people are not doing that's right which a is lot of why we're aren't. having an increase in cases right and honestly i think there's nothing you can do to really stop completely the spread of this disease because there's just so many so many ways that people can 
actually get it, breathing the same air, touching items, and then touching their mouth, nose, eyes. You know, it, it's just almost impossible. And the good news is that it seems to be killing less people than it did before. So maybe it's either mutating and becoming more, it could be getting more transmissible, but less fa- gotcha. lethal. And I would probably would take that, prefer, prefer that to more lethal and less transmissible. Absolutely. But anyhow, this is just a tough thing. Now, I'm someone who's well into his geezer hood. No, don't believe him. I'm an old geezer, no. and I, I admit it. And I appreciate it when people wear masks if we were you're going a, to be in a, a small ute. room together. You're a, a, a ute. ute. I'm a ute. Well, <laughs> my ute is long gone. But, no. but I want to say this about one, about one of our utes in our family. One of our sons is a kidney transplant recipient, so we have to be especially careful around him. So if you're going to be visiting someone else's home, you got to be sure you take some hand sanitizer with you or don't be shy about asking where you can wash your hands. And of course, in your own home, you should wash your hands often. Number four, what cues should people look for throughout the summer to loosen or tighten how strict they are with social get-togethers? What factors would make you change your behavior? Well, of course, I make sure to keep track of the number of cases, the latest CDC recommendations, just so that we know what is being disseminated to people. I may or may not agree with some of them, but for the most part, I do. Citizens should avoid any group activities if the area is experiencing a spike in cases. And gatherings that include small children, they don't really understand social distancing. Well, those should be especially, you got to be especially careful in those circumstances. Right. You got to remember that every part of the country is going to have first and second waves. That a lot of people are, a lot of areas in the country are still in their first wave. And indeed, there is going to be a second wave. There is going to be probably a third wave too. But all of these are going to occur at different times in different parts of the country. Mm-hmm. Now, this is sort of controversial, Controversial, but if cases drop way down, maybe restrictions should relax and businesses should reopen. You've got to realize, however, that there will be a rise in cases as a result, as we have seen. You know, people forget that health officials give advice basically as a health official, right. purely in the hopes of flattening the curve, as they say, and leave concerns about a collapsing economy to the politicians, the bureaucrats, and people that have to take home a paycheck every week. And the wisest medical advice in an epidemic scenario is rarely the soundest financial advice. That's true. And just as the right tactical advice is not always the right medical advice for, let's say, a medic in the midst of a firefight. If you're if you're the medic, you know, going to help somebody is great, but it could get yourself killed. Probably the best thing to do in your situation, if you were the medic and in the midst of a firefight, is probably to shoot back and try to suppress fire so you could actually get to that person that needs help. Good point. Number five, when will you feel safe visiting family and close friends without social distancing or masks? Oh, boy. You know my answer. Well. Probably not for a very long time. That's true. I think it's very, Sadly. very uncertain that we'll ever return to the good old days of 2019. Uh, once there is a viable treatment, however, that's widely available or maybe a proven safe vaccine, it's possible we might see things get close to the way they were, and I'll act accordingly. You, I want you to know that you should be socially responsible and expect socially responsible folks have to have, as I have always recommended, a supply of masks 
at an early trigger to renew social distancing. Now, one issue I don't see discussed and is to me a concern is that we we have experienced epidemic outbreaks several times in the last decade. You may not have noticed, but Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, Ebola, Zika, Chikungunya, this virus here, SARS-CoV-2, and others have invaded this area over the last 10 years. That's a lot of different viral epidemics occurring in a relatively short period of time. I believe health officials are going to be very quick to institute lockdowns in future outbreaks. And the way they've done it this way has boded very poorly for us returning to our previous prosperity. And, yes? California is reversing a lot of their openings. Well, and believe me, that is not a good thing for the prosperity of California or the prosperity of the nation. And the same thing with other other states that just go back to some a strict lockdown, I think that no matter what you do, it's going to be very difficult to really prevent this from happening. The only thing that we can hope for is that people don't get very sick with right. regards to it. That's true. So my advice to family and friends, especially those who see the risk differently than I do, is I would say if basically... If, if this person's a stranger and they won't take measures to prevent infection, I think you should just like wearing a mask in a public area where there are a lot of people, you know, just move away from these people. And with right. friends, avoid of, closed spaces. There you go. Right. And close, if there's going to be people there that are not going to be wearing their masks, do not be stuck in a closed space with them because that's where the viral load it will be concentrated in the environment. With friends and family, well, everybody has a different opinion. Uh, as we all know. And the important thing is to reach areas of agreement on what measures that people can accept that will decrease the spread of the infection. We're all in this together. That's something that's very important. Don't be afraid to lead by example when other people see that you're serious about measures that lower the risk of COVID-19. Well, they may be more likely to take things as seriously as they need to. And especially, as you're saying, Amy, as you have always said, that means that... Got to stay outside during the gatherings. Exactly right. Absolutely. Now, it's funny that you and I have been talking a lot about what possibly could be contributing to our huge number of Florida cases. In fact, yesterday was a record setter for, unfortunately, Florida deaths. So that's one thing sad. But... You and I have been discussing what is going on because the schools are closed down. We have to wear masks in Broward County and Dade County when we go into a Home Depot, when we go into a Publix, you know, when we go into a Walgreens or a Walmart or a Target or where whatever shopping that you're doing. When you go into these buildings, you have to wear it. Most businesses are being really good about not allowing people to go in without masks. So I feel very safe in these quote-unquote public spaces. Controlled public spaces. Because you and I are using a lot of hand sanitizer. Mm -hmm. We're making sure we get home, we wash our hands, we use hand sanitizer throughout the shopping process, which for us has been completely limited to a grocery shop, which is public. Grocery shopping, yeah. So you and I were discussing, well, how is this being transmitted? Mm -hmm. Where is this happening? I see work environments being, you know, pretty safe because there's a lot of restrictions. So how is this happening? And you and I, and it was my idea, 
that I said it's family gatherings. It's absolutely people who are tired of being kept away from grandma, grandpa, and aunt and uncle, and cousins, and brothers and sisters, and they're all getting together in houses. And they're also inviting some of their friends, and they're having house parties. And I'm reading right here a uh, mayor's report from, I think I get it from Sunrise, Florida. And it is saying, right here in front of me, reported that 80% of recent new positives came from family and neighborhood gatherings. And they have an exclamation point there. Uh, I believe that it. That means that someone got it from somewhere and then spread it in a gathering. <laughs> that's the next sentence. That's in bold and underlined and has an exclamation right. in point. in case you couldn't read English the yeah. first time. Right. <laughs> exactly. So stay out of these birthday parties and these barbecues. Although if you're all outside, I don't have a problem with it. Just maintain some distance. But if you guys all go into the kitchen or the living room to watch something on television. Yeah, especially if you're going to face each other. And you're all sitting next to each other and you're yelling and you're having conversations. Not yelling because you're mad, but just, you know, heightened voice because you're excited because you're around people and you are having something important to say. You know, your your increased voice and your forcefulness from the voice spreads this COVID even further across the room. So you're getting even more people sick if you have it. We just need to stay out of homes of each other unless it's a couple of people distancing themselves at least six feet. You know, you can have two or three people over. You can't have 20, 15, 10, 40. They're just crowding each other and going into homes because it's hot as Hades outside, right? Right. And they want air conditioning, so they all go inside, even though they might have planned to have a barbecue. Oh, we'll just all go inside. You guys all look fine. And then they're getting sick, and then they're passing it back to other family members and friends. This is happening because people are not taking precautions this is not happening to people who are washing their hands using hand sanitizer maintaining six feet distance wearing masks when they go into public spaces that is not happening to those people it's happening to the ones who are being lax and taking this like it's no big deal well that's fine if you want to get covid go for it you know i wish you luck hopefully you'll be fine but for some of us who have health risks no thank you. So I'm going to wear my mask and we're going to wash our hands and we're going to be careful and we're not going to social gatherings. And that's just the way it is. So it is family and friends getting together in homes that is causing the spread. It's not just jumping from the sky. So it's a difficult, certainly a difficult subject to have to deal with, but it's safest just simply to continue to, uh, Stay away from large gatherings if at all possible. And it, any situation where you may be working or something like that, you just have to have masks and you just have to be really washing your hands, often with soap and water or hand sanitizer. And for that, re- for, for that reason, we have to just continue to stay the course. Absolutely. Now, I will say this. I will say this, that in World War one and also in the aftermath mm-hmm. of World War One mm-hmm. in the United States, that the, we didn't really do a lot 
of this social distancing, mask wearing, things like that. We did some, and uh, you know, especially health workers might, may have done that way back then. I mean, we're talking about 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. But the bad news that might harm the war effort was never reported. And uh, certainly a worldwide pandemic is bad news. And so many people just went their own way. And so in this situation, what happened was instead of having what we have now, which is maybe 134,000 or 135,000 people with an average age of 80 that are passing away, they had a couple of million people that were in the prime of their life, as well as the elderly and the very young passing away back then. So the, so there there is a difference in the effect. There is an effect as a result of doing the things that they say to do to try to prevent the infection. Hey, you know what? Over the years, I've made it my mission to notify the public, at least those people that would listen, of new infectious disease outbreaks. And there have been a ton of them. I just mentioned a few of them. And I first started talking about uh, this one, uh, SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, wasn't even called that back then. When I read reports from China on January 7th of a mysterious pneumonia that had sickened like 60 people in the city of Wuhan, well, now we know, and we know where it's gone from there. But now there's a report from Chinese officials about a new respiratory infection they're claiming in the neighboring country of Kazakhstan. And that Kazakhstan was once part of the USSR, and it is a big country. It's one of the largest countries in the world, really, but it's still dwarfed by neighboring nations like Russia mm-hmm. and China, but it's a big old country. And uh, I looked at uh, some of the pictures of their capital city. It looks actually pretty modern. Now, according to the Chinese report, the unidentified pneumonia in Kazakhstan has killed more than 1,700 people. And the funny thing is that the Kazakh health ministry officials admit to seeing viral pneumonias, indeed, in which the case is unspecified. They say, however, that this does not conform to reality, that, that it's a new virus. They say that the word unspecified is often used for cases of COVID-19 that are based on symptoms, but not confirmed with laboratory tests. And honestly, between you and I, I don't know how good a medical system or a medical infrastructure that Kazakhstan has and whether they are doing a lot of testing or not. The World Health Organization believes the unspecified pneumonias are just COVID-19, maybe in uh, a different strain. It's had, they've had a surge in Kazakhstan of over 10,000 COVID-19 cases in the last week or so, and they're investigating the quality of testing as a possible issue. The funny thing about the place is the country has recorded about 56,000 cases, but there have only been about 265 deaths. So that's an unusually low number of COVID-19 deaths. And that's what makes one suspect that maybe some of the unspecified infections really are positive for the virus, but who officials state they're keeping an open mind. And remember, I believe that total cases are wildly underestimated, probably by a factor of 10, 20, and that actually lowers the death percentage even more from COVID-19. I think that imprecise reporting accounts for the low death numbers in Kazakhstan. Right. But from my standpoint in the United States, it's simply because we have so many cases that have not yet been identified or may never be identified as people have mildly symptomatic or asymptomatic cases that just go away. We'll just have to see. It's not that easy to test 330 million people. Now, 
there's an uncertainty about the numbers, and that can always affect the ability to understand and control viral outbreaks. Because the thing is, the statistics can be manipulated. They can be manipulated on purpose, or they can be manipulated simply by poor quality testing and reporting. I'm not, as I said, an expert on the Kazakh medical infrastructure, but I'll bet that the number of cases and deaths there are just not accurate. A government can put out inaccurately low numbers, by the way, in, in an effort to avoid panic in its citizens. I think China has done that. Uh, China has been accused of lowballing their case numbers and deaths. And on the other hand, a country can post inaccurately high numbers to panic another nation's people. In other words, uh, the Chinese people can say, well, there are a lot of deaths in Kazakhstan and freak out the people in Kazakhstan, just like American health officials could freak out Canadian people by simply saying that there are a lot of deaths in Canada. So that can be a sort of propaganda type campaign that can freak out your neighboring countries. And I don't know if that's what's happening in Kazakhstan or not. I do know that totalitarian regimes may limit the dissemination of information to give an unclear picture of an epidemic's real effect on a country. And a prime example is North Korea, which like Kazakhstan borders China, there have been no COVID-19 cases reported by North Korean health officials, but it's likely that they exist. Indeed, there was a time that we thought that uh, Kim Jong-un was actually being treated for COVID-19. Remember that? Yes, and that he was in a coma. Right. Or on a ventilator. So he managed to apparently survive that, but interest. Well, we don't know if it was true. <laughs> that's, that's right. We don't. We'll never know if that was true. <laughs> that's the thing. And numbers can also be affected by the limitation on lab facilities to test for a, for a disease. Testing in the U.S., one of the most highly developed nations in the world, has been criticized. Well, the truth of the matter is, is that in some emerging infectious diseases, it may take months to develop an accurate test. Could Kazakh testing be any better than... American testing? Well, probably American testing is better. The number of tests available play a factor in the reporting of new cases. You want to drop the number of cases of a virus? Well, stop testing for it. That's pretty much what's happened in China. But honestly, we don't hear about a millions and millions of tests being done in China. No, So not anymore. You want to drop the number of cases of a virus? Stop testing for it. If the tests don't exist, COVID-19 cases aren't recorded unless you drop the standard. Now, if you do that, if you use x-ray evidence of pneumonia instead of testing, does everyone with pneumonia become labeled a COVID patient? What happens to all the influenza cases that kill thousands of elderly folks every year? These are just some of the factors that confound scientists that are trying to get a handle on a new viral disease. Now, time's going to tell whether the mysterious pneumonia in Kazakhstan turns out to be something, but you got to keep an open mind and you always have, that's always a wise approach to emerging viral threats. And by the way, Kazakhstan is a sort of a crazy place because they have this unusual looking endangered antelope there. It actually has sort of a, a floppy nose, like, it, like a, the beginning of a trunk, an mm -hmm. elephant's trunk. Mm -hmm. It doesn't go, you know, down to the ground, but it, you know, it, it's, floppy and it's sort of a big nose it's a really distinctive looking animal look it up it's called the sega s-a-i-g-a antelope and i mentioned that because for some reason entire herds of this critically endangered antelope recently just dropped dead in the month of june of some unknown disease they think that's some kind of bacterium but it's pretty striking the photos that i'm seeing here of entire herds of deer that are just laying dead on the ground on right. the ground 
So I don't know. I mean, the veterinarians there say the extent and speed of the deaths are, alar are alarming. We don't know really what's going on with it, but hopefully that will stop soon. Maybe it's one of those periodic die-offs that you see. Well, you know what? I think that's about all the time we have for today. I hope that you enjoyed listening to the Survival Medicine Podcast with Amy Alden and the old Dr. Dr. Bones. Bones. <laughs> we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week. Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become? In these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse, you need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Amy Alton, ARNP of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did.